1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 11 this morning. Um, So we had an introduction last week uh, on the nature and the authority of the Apostle. Uh, and, and his sense of urgency that even though I'm, I, I'm not going to be there, I, I hope to be there, uh, I've got to write these things down. I want you to think of it this way, all right? Let's say that Three Rivers was the only, the only Christian church in the Grove area. Was it. And um, those who came here were in danger, uh, physical danger. They're in danger of losing their jobs. Families had written them off because they worshipped here. That's pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? I mean, we, we've just got so used to, I go to church if it's convenient, and I've got this one, I've got that one, and I've got, you know, it, and it's, you know, if there's not something better going on, maybe, but, but to think about that a family had to make a choice. We're risking our lives today to meet with these people. Now, it still happens across the globe all over the place. I mean, that's the first thing I was wondering about the Kellys. Are, are, they, you know, are they allowed to worship? Are they afraid to worship? Can they share their faith? I believe it's illegal to share your faith, right? It's illegal to proselytize. So, um, so think about that. If Three Rivers was it, okay? And if I was an apostle, and I came here and everybody in this church pretty much came to know Christ through an encounter with me. There were powerful things done. There was a reputation. You know, this guy, when he was here, people were lying to the Holy Spirit. They were struck down. He's, he's, you know, he, he's an amazing guy. And then, and then I leave. And uh, we put Jake in charge. <laughs> we put Isaac Sheffield in charge. Or we put some young person in charge. And then I write you a letter. Things had been going on. But before I left you, before I got on the boat and me and Tammy sailed away, we read about what he said to the church in Acts 20. This is what, this is what the apostle said to the church, uh, the Ephesian elders. He said to them, I know, we read about this in Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, he's looking at his church and he loved this church, um, they, were, they, were, they were in his heart. They, they cried and wept over each other when he left. Um, it was, you know, I think it's the church of his heart. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the Apostle Paul leaving tells the elders, I know that false teachers are going to arise. It breaks my heart to know that some of you may, may arise and draw away people from the truth. So even in Acts, you get the sense that the Apostle Paul is telling the elders, there is a core doctrine of the gospel that you must hold on to. You've got to keep this gospel truth. 
uh, all through Timothy, we'll see it. Sound words, uh, trustworthy sayings. He'll say, you know, these are the things I told you. This is what I passed on for you to believe. Uh, this is the creed that you must not stray from. So, uh, so that, that happens. And then Paul plants the church. He leaves. He puts Timothy in charge. And lo and behold, these false teachers show up. You know, and I can say, you know, I've told you this. I used to always say this with my boys. Sometimes I hate being right, right? Uh, I've told you tons of stories about all the bad things my boys did. And I warned them, if you do this, this will happen. And, you know, they did this, this will happen. And I'd look at them and like, oh, no, I hate being right. In some sense, you have the sense that Paul is saying that I told you this was going to happen. I prepared you. I've given you the word. I've given you the sound doctrine. I've given you leaders. Uh, I've sent Timothy. He's like my son. I'm so close to Timothy. I've sent him and I've entrusted him. And this is the letter he gives them. Okay, this is, this is the letter. He sits down and writes this church that he loves. So first couple of verses we looked at last week, establishing that Paul has the authority of the apostle, that behind him stands Jesus, who personally, physically appointed him and charged him. And so we pick up here now in verse 3 of chapter 1. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. <coughs> As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Indeed, the grass does wither, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. In your bulletin, it says false teachers, question mark. Uh, that's because I sent the wrong information to Kathy. Sorry, Kathy. Uh, I, I wasn't sure what the title would be, so I, that's why I had question marks. Uh, I don't know if it matters that much, but the title this morning is Using the Law Lawfully. It might have been better to even say Using the Right Law Lawfully. Uh, he says it here in verse 8. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the intent of that sentence is to say that there are those who use it unlawfully. Um, but this morning, even before we get into the idea of the law um, and using it, I want you to understand what law he's talking about. Um, when he says the law, uh, the apostle is speaking of the entire word of God. He is not just speaking of the Ten Commandments, although in the end, 
It's interesting in the end, uh, when he says, here's who the law is written for, he, can really, he really lists out application from the Ten Commandments. We'll get to that uh, at the end. But what does he mean by the law? Well, first of all, we all serve a law. Okay, we, we all have, uh, and I don't know, maybe a default system that we hold to. Uh, the, the, the law that, that tells us, that, that's ingrained in us, that tells us not just what is right and wrong, but what is worthwhile. What should I do with my time? How should I spend my day? How should I respond to this? How should I treat my waitress? How should I, uh, how, how, what am I to expect from mom, from dad, from uncle, from aunt, from brother, from sister? Um, when he speaks about using the law of God, he's saying that this word of God that has been given to us, it, it is a complete system, not just a thought, but a very being. And we, we have a system. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. In Second um, Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles thirty-four, we have this interesting account. Um, maybe you've heard of King Josiah, one of my favorite characters. You read about him in Second Chronicles. Uh, Josiah became king when he was eight. I've talked to you about him before. He's one of my favorite illustrations. He became king at eight years old, and he must have had really good advisors, um, holy men, I think, that surrounded him. But, but it says basically that the Lord blessed him, and he was a godly king, even at age eight. And so he set his heart upon ridding the country of all these terrible pagan practices, child sacrifice, cult prostitution. Um, he set his heart on ridding uh, all, the, all the land from that. And it took a long time because in chapter 34, it's 18 years after he had been king. So he's now 26. The last 18 years, he had been painstakingly removing all the idols from the community. Let me put it to you this way, okay? I'm going to be very blunt. If you were to do that in the U.S., remove all the idols, a lot of the stuff we watch on Sunday, gone. We as a people, we worship our athletes. We worship our sports. We, 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 maybe not in this church, but as a community, driven. Perform, perform, perform. We worship our business, our success, our power, our freedoms. For 18 years, Josiah would go and he would say, he would go to a place and he would take an idol out and all the farmers would say, if you take that idol out, our crops are going to fail. If you get rid of this idol, our enemies are going to come and they're going to take over our city. That's how tied they are to it. And we have to think in those lines. Our God says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, I will not give my glory to another. I won't share my glory with another. I am God. Josiah, for 18 years, had done that. And then we read that this is what happened. They were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord. So the house of the Lord, the beautiful temple Solomon built, disrepair. Hilkiah, the priest, he found the book of the law. So they find the Bible. They find the first five books of the Bible. Probably some of the prophets, too. The priest brings it to the secretary. The secretary then brings it to the king. And um, 
they tell the king, they've emptied out the money that was found, uh, and we found this book. Verse 18, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read from it before the king. So here's this king at 26, and they find this scroll. All right, so Josiah had been operating out of some system of law, passed on maybe from prophets and other kings, and he had some system of law that was telling him we have to remove these idols, and we have to focus on worshiping God and him alone. But it says, uh, when the king heard these words in verse 19, he tore his clothes. For a king, that was to show great sorrow and mourning. Your clothes represented your value, your place, what you wore set you apart from other people. The king had his royal robes. You know, as Jake's been preaching through 1 Samuel, we talked about how Jonathan took his clothes and he put them on David. Beautiful sign of, of friendship, humility. And I, I'm trusting that God is going to make you king instead of me. You receive all these rights. He tears his clothes and the king commands Hilkiah the son. And he says, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers haven't kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Now, I, I, I'm taking a moment to talk about the right law because we all have a default system of law. We think about God. God shouldn't let this happen. They shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. I should do this. This is okay. This isn't okay. Right? All of us, because we're created in God's image, we, we have an internal law. The Bible says that it has been stained. It's been polluted by sin, but we have it. And just like Josiah, who for 18 years had done right, needed to actually read the very word of God, and when he reads that very word of God, he, he himself says, I've done all these great things. I'm known as a godly king. And yet the requirements of God's law are so great that his wrath must be heavy against us. Now, do you do that with God's word? I want to just encourage you to be people of the law. People that say, when, when, when facing any decision, what does my God say? What does his Bible say? How do I understand this? Now, I found it interesting that over the years, uh, a lot of non-Christian friends and some extended family members, they always found it interesting that somebody from church would call me about a business issue. And I would say, oh, well, maybe they're talking to you because you used to be in business. I'm like, no, they're talking to me because I'm their pastor. People come to me with marriage issues. Did you, are you a marriage counselor? No, I'm a pastor. Well, what purpose, how can you help these people with their kids? I'm a pastor. They expect me to know God's word. And they expect God's word to speak into their business. Actual business. Family business, business business. They expect the law of God and the pleasing of God to have something to do with how they treat their partner. Um, that's the word. 
And so the first thing I want us to think about is the right law. Verses 3 to 7, we looked at this last week, but he, he talks about the, the law. And, and the reason we need the right law is, is look what it says. First of all, it says you are taught. So it's important for us to know that you have been taught a law. Right? We always joke about the Kuiper rules. Right? And, and everybody at Three Rivers, they should know Kuiper rule number one. Don't force it. <laughs> I wish it would have been better. Uh, but we have other rules. So uh, there is the stupidity rules, and I don't even think I ever talked to you about the stupidity rules. But there's like three stupidity rules, right? The, the first one is, son, stupid hurts. <laughs> Two, stupid is expensive. <laughs> So we, we instill in them, right? Mom instills in them a work ethic, a study ethic, how to be a good student. Dad instills in them the laws of fun, right? I mean, we, we, we instill, it's something we're taught, right? You go home, you, you bring your significant other, you're getting married, you bring them and you wonder, are they going to fit into the family law? It's something we're taught. We are taught values, purposes, ethics. We're taught what its glory looks like, how to seek it, what, is to, what are we to value. Timothy, it's God's law that they need to be taught. He says you're devoted to it. Are you devoted to the Word of God? You read it and study it and say, I must know it. It, it, it must be part of how I think. That law controls me. It tells me what I'm to, to seek after. Uh, it, it says that you, he's devoted to it and it's promoted. What does that law promote in you? What does it make you? And so first of all, we must have this right law of God. And so I took the sermon and the sentence right from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. Making wise the simple. Christian, you must believe this. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is right, it is complete, and it makes wise the simple. You've got to set your minds on knowing the word of God. So secondly, what's the wrong use? Well, first of all, anything, he says here, they have twisted it. They've diverted it. And that's the greatest concern for Christian people are things that sound Christian. That's why Paul, his warning to them is from your own group. People are going to arise and they're going to twist the truth. They're going to make it maybe more palatable in your culture or in your life. Um, and so any different doctrine, any doctrine that might come as new and slightly improved, we've got to ask ourselves... Um, does this come from God? Is it in agreement with the apostolic teaching of the scriptures? Or is it from human wisdom and imagination? Does it promote a genuine love? What is the fruit of their doctrines? Here he has said that the wrong use was uh, leading them into myths and genealogies. There were things that promoted speculation rather than stewardship. They promoted division over unity. And ultimately it drives what you worship and how you worship. So the wrong use of the law would be any law that would promote a righteousness apart from the gospel. Any law, any system that says, here's how you control God. Here's how you are made right before God. 
Now, here's the easy way to test it. And what I, is what I hear, is it making more of God? What I believe, is, is, it, is it making God even more perfect, pure, honest, righteous? Is it making me less? Choose and follow a doctrine that makes much of God. Here he says it leads into vain discussions. You know, we have had in our own denomination many vain discussions. Uh, lots of speculation. You can pray for us as a denomination and the evangelical church in general that we don't get sidetracked into meaningless discussions. The wrong use of the law is building up the teacher of the law. What does he say? They desire to be a teacher of the law. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, they, they desire the status, the standing, the honor, the glory that comes from being a teacher of the law. Not they desire to know the law. And so he says that's why they are teaching things they don't even understand. So what's the right use of the law? Well, we pick up here in verse 8, and I'm going to run through this, but he says there is a right use of the law. And, and so oftentimes uh, people... They, we, we talk about God's grace, His mercy, the gospel, and, and we say we don't longer live under the law. We make light of the law, or the law isn't as important anymore, or you're a legalistic person um, because you follow the law of God. Well, the, the law and gospel, they go together. They absolutely go together. Where the law increases, so does grace increase. What does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? He takes the law and he doesn't make it easier to follow. He makes it much deeper. I mean, Jake was talking about tithing, you know, and, and that, that's one area. Like a Christian, I can tithe, so I'm good to go. And, and no, it, it's much more than that. It's God has stewardship over everything. Um, so the right use of the law, it's interesting. In 1577, the Lutherans had argued with the right use of the law. And they, they have the formula of the concord of the Lutherans. And they say there are three uses of the law. The first is a means to the preservation of human society. The thing about that, when God gives us his law, he's saying this is good for every human being, not just Christians. Every human being. It's good for humanity. And I told you this before, that my son was looking at buying land somewhere overseas, and I'm like, do you know what their government is like? He's like, I don't care what the government is like. Do you know that the government could take your land away? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's important to understand what kind of laws go on in that society. The preservation of society. The second thing, uh, a summons and a repentance to faith. All right, so God's law, it tells us how to live, but it also causes us to repentance and faith. And third, a direction for the church. Calvin's Institutes kind of took the order differently. So in Calvin's Institutes, book 2, chapter 7, says that the law, it is punitive. It renders us inexcusable and drives us, here's his words, drives us to despair uh, naked and empty. Then we flee to God's mercy. We give ourselves to it. We hide deeply in it and we seize upon it alone for righteousness and merit. God's law drives us to despair. And then naked and empty, we flee to God for mercy. 
We give ourselves to it, His mercy. We hide in it. We seize upon it alone for righteousness and merit. That's why the law must be preached. We must have this sense that that my, my, my hope is found in Christ and Him alone, not in my ability to keep the law. Secondly, to restrain evildoers and protect society, an external deterrent. And third, the proper purpose uh, is a guide to living in and for the glory of God. So when we look at the law of God, we look at the Word of God, and we say these are the things He delights in. This is what He is like. This is who He calls us to be. But also, I would add one more, it also gives us hope. When you read the law of God as a man, you read the Ten Commandments, I read that as a man and I say, that's the man I want to be. Oh God, make me into that man. God, make me into that man that loves you more than anything. Make me into that man that would never ever want to profane your name in public or in private. Lord, make me into that man that loves your day, that thinks I cannot wait for the Sabbath. I get to worship my God. I get to throw off all of the other restraints and throw myself. And make me that man that honors my father and mother as they struggle with memory issues, need care. Make me that man that stays true to my wife. Make me that man whose word, whose word can always be trusted. You know, make me that man that doesn't ever want to take what's not mine. Make me that man that doesn't covet anything from anybody, right? So that law, it also for us says, here's how I'm going to remake you. God's going to remake us into the person that we deeply long to be. Right? What, what, really, what human wouldn't want to be that kind of person? Trustworthy, honest person. And so in this text, the apostle is reminding Timothy, we must teach the law. We must teach the right use of the law. And here it is, Timothy. The law drives us back to our Savior. Here it is, Timothy. The law shows us how to live. And Timothy, the law was given for lawbreakers. Now, before you think that he is saying it's not for you, Uh, In this same context, just a few verses down in verse 15, the apostle says this of himself. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. Okay, so when he says saying is trustworthy, he is saying this is like a creed. This is another one of those sayings. Remember this, Timothy. This is what I've taught you. This is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know what he says after that? Of whom I am the foremost. All right, so when the apostle here is writing that the law was given for sinners and the lawless, he is saying the law was given for us, Timothy, was given for every one of us, Timothy. I am the foremost of sinners, right? So uh, it convicts us of sin, teaches us righteousness, and gives us a guide for living. All right, now just in the last few minutes, I want us to take and run through what he lists here. Okay, the first four commands, so if you look at uh, verse 8 and 9. The law is good, one uses it lawfully, understanding it's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the profane. All of those 
deal with the first four commandments. All right, the first four commandments are our duty to God. First four commandments, right? No other gods, no idols, God's name and God's day. Those first four things, he says, this is what the law reminds us of, how we have broken these. And then the next words go right in order of the next six commandments. The first four, here's how we honor our God. Here's why our God needs to save us, because we've dishonored Him. The next six, here's how we live amongst each other. So what does he say? Verse, uh, the fifth commandment, honor your parents. He says the law is given for those who would strike their father and their mother. Commandment number six, do not commit murder. He says the law is given for murderers. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. The law is given to restrain immoral men, he says here, who practice homosexuality. That's not the complete and the total application of that, but it's one application. A particular in Ephesus. It's not something new. not something we're just now facing in the church. It's been that way from as far back as we can read in the Scriptures. What does the law say? They shall not steal. What does he say? In Ephesus, there are those that are enslavers. They steal human beings in order to sell them. That same Bible that says homosexuality is a sin against creation and against human beings and against God, it says it's a sin to steal and sell human beings. That same law then in uh, commandment 9, don't bear false witness. What does he say here? The law is given for the liars and the perjurers. The law says do not covet. Paul says here the law is given for whatever else is contrary. Now you want to see what the law looks like in the life of a human being? You read the gospel. You see what the law of God looks like? You study Jesus. He keeps all of these. In his flesh as he walks and lives amongst us, he keeps all of these. Now I rushed through that and you have time to read it on your own if you want. In conclusion, I put it in here, you're not everyone. I mean by that, and again, I, I know I talk a lot about parenting, but that's where it came out in my life. When you catch your kid cheating, and they say everyone cheats. When you leave early from work, because everyone leaves early. When you call in sick on a day that you just really don't want to go to work, but that's okay because everyone does it. I mean, I, I, I would say to my kids, you're not everyone. The law of God is to affect all of those things. It, it is to drive us to pure living, not because we need it for God's favor, but because we have God's favor. Having God's favor removes a lot of the temptation. I don't have to prove myself. But also following God's law is not easy in this world. It's especially not easy when everyone else seems to be breaking it. And they don't suffer for it. Not so with you. Timothy, they are to be taught 
the law of God. Timothy, you are to teach them sound doctrine from the word of God. Timothy, they are to devote themselves to it. Their thoughts should be, what does my God ordain? What does my God desire? And Timothy, it should promote in them righteous living and unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is true, that it is reliable, and that it is complete. And that if we humble ourselves before us, you will indeed give us direction into every area of our life. It will be that path. It will be the light to us. And that light will shine so brightly upon our Savior, Jesus, that at the moment that our sin seems unbearable, Father, we will turn our eyes upon Him and we will gaze upon our righteousness. We will gaze upon perfection. And we will realize You have received us in Him. And that You forgive and that You wash. And yet You take us back to Your law as a coach, as a school teacher, as a wonderful parent that says, here is how we are to live for the most joy, the most glory for God. Oh, help us, Father. Help us not to give in to societal pressures, to the pressures of our peers, the pressures of our parents, our own desires, Father, but to give in wholly to what you desire. Help us not understand just what it says, but to be able to apply it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.